Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Manny Friedman, the founder of EJF Capital. Manny discussed his background and his nuanced take on markets last summer in episode 61 of the podcast, which you can find again on the feed after this show. In that conversation, he mentioned a new regulation in the United States that created an area of investing called economic opportunity zones. I started learning about opportunity zones from Manny and dove in for my day job. Since then, more and more eyes are viewing investments in opportunity zones, and we sat down to get his perspective at the Context Summit in Miami 
amidst a sea of allocators and hedge fund managers. Our conversation covers the government's broad bipartisan effort to reallocate capital to underinvested areas of the country, how tax incentives will potentially unlock trillions of dollars of unrealized capital gains, the future attraction of economic opportunity zones to non-taxable and ESG investors, the ways in which the program could fall short of its lofty goals, and specific examples of how a virtuous circle can get created and make a meaningful dent in the economic divide in the United States. Please enjoy my conversation with Manny Friedman. Manny, great to see you again. Good, Ted. Our last podcast worked out pretty well. Oh, good. Good. Well, we're down here at the Context Summit in Miami, so if there's chatter, background noise, there's a lot of activity. The last time we spoke, you had mentioned this new thing people were going to pay attention to called Economic Opportunity Zones, and it was the first I had heard of it. But working with family, I've paid a lot of attention to it since, and I thought it'd be fun to sit down and just talk about it. So why don't we start with your describing what is this thing that people are talking about, these economic opportunity zones? Sure. So a group of people came together and have worked on it for six or seven years. And these are people who really want to try to change America more from a philanthropy point of view. And they're very, very active in that area. And they said, look, we're going to create a change in America that's going to move the needle not a foot, not an inch, but we're going to move it 10 miles. And we're going to do this by having this massive reallocation of capital from one area of the country to another area of the country. And that is really the goal of the op zone to try to equalize the massive disparity that's grown in the country for the last 20 years, 15 years, 10 years, five years. And so it's certainly a large, gigantic attempt. It's the biggest thing I've ever seen in my lifetime to reallocate capital and let it flow and let it change the different parts of the country and let it equalize the, the economic areas of the country. There's a starting point. What are the actual regulations that create these incentives that you're talking about to change the flow of capital? So the incentives are that in this country, we have a massive amount of what I would call unlocked capital, capital sitting in buildings, capital sitting in stocks that people don't want to sell because they've been held for so long or created so cheaply, and therefore they have huge capital gains. They don't want to take the capital gains. And so because that number is so large and it grows every year, Right now, it's probably seven, eight trillion dollars, but it's growing in another two and a half trillion dollars every year. And so, that over a period of time, we believe at least a trillion dollars of capital is going to flow from one area, one geography to another geography, from one neighborhood to another neighborhood. And that is what's going to happen. 
And what's the mechanism for making that happen? The mechanism is quite simple. We're basically the, the government's going to say, look, if you have any kind of capital gains today or potential capital gains, what we'll do is we'll defer those capital gains if you invest in these areas. And just as important on your investment, if it's successful, whether it be a real estate, whether it be a business, whether it be Uber, whether it be Facebook, whether it be the newest AI company, we're not going to tax you on that investment if you hold it for 10 years. And we won't tax you on it until 47 when you will then get the basis of 2047. Uh, so that is the mechanism. It's a simple mechanism that we're going to defer capital gains. You put up $100, you defer $100 of capital gains. In some states, that's a lot. It's In D.C., it's 53%. In New York, it's 53% on short-term capital gains. It's 32 on long-term capital gains. And we're going to defer that gain. But even more important, your investment is going to be non-taxable if you make a long-term commitment. It's going to encourage every single business that's going to start up United States. It's going to force it for tax reasons, for economic reasons, to be in an opportunity zone. Not only that, the opportunity zone also acts as a phenomenal recruiting tool because when I go to hire you and I tell you, look, you're starting a new Amazon and if we're successful, you're not going to have to pay capital gain tax on your investment, then it's a massive recruiting tool for you, for your number one, number two, number 10 person. And also it has a certain tsunami effect. It has a law of increasing returns where people want to be located where things are changing, where industries are coming together. And so that is the real goal of this program. So let's break down the pieces of that. To start with, how did it get determined which areas are these economic opportunity zones? So the areas were decided by the 2010 census. It had to be areas that were underserved, had lower income, and that then was the starting point, 25% below the, the median income. Then once you had all these different areas each governor of each state could then pick the places it wanted because it turned out there were too many areas and it covered too much of every single state. So, in fact, it's 10% of the entire United States is an opportunity zone. That's in every city, every state, every rural area, all of Puerto Rico. So it's everywhere. That's the first thing. And it covers 12% of the population. So there's no trouble finding an opportunity zone anywhere in any place you want to locate a business or in any city in the United States. And the mechanisms that you mentioned for deferral, let me just make sure I understand. Someone takes a gain and it could be a stock. It could be a sale of a business. It could be real estate. They then take the money they would have paid taxes on the gain and they make an investment with it. 
They invest it in a opportunity zone fund, and they must do that within six months of when they take their gain. However, if they get a K-1, they have really three months after they get their K-1 to make their investment. They can go back the entire next year. So if you got your capital gains in April, then you would have until June 30th to defer your gain to have your tax savings. So we expect to see a great deal of activity between April and June of this year because the only thing you can do. And most of what we've seen so far are tied to real estate investments. So the rules are still being put out as we speak. So right now, in fact, it's almost impossible to invest in a business yet because the rules are not established. So we have heard from Congress, we've heard from the White House, we've heard from Treasury, Internal Revenue, that the rules are going to be extremely liberal to encourage both investments in op zones, allow businesses that are in op zones to participate, and the rules for real estate have further to be defined, though certainly because the real estate rules were put out first, real estate people are pretty aggressive, so they have jumped on this first and gotten all the publicity. The fact is, which people don't realize, 70% of this is aimed at business. If this doesn't create jobs, 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 then this is going to be a complete failure. You're going to have stranded real estate. So the main aim is jobs. So the publicity, how everyone has looked at it, has been from a real estate point of view. Real estate is supposed to be the infrastructure of this program. And what happens after that? The first step will be probably business investments. And Puerto Rico is going to be in business investments. Let's just go through a few examples that haven't gotten real publicity. Google is just moving 20,000 AI people to the tip of New York. Now, some of it's not in an opportunity zone, but it's surrounded by three opportunity zones. 20,000 artificial intelligence People will create 50,000 artificial intelligence people. Google will go and start some of their offshoot companies across the river in Brooklyn or in the opportunity zones on the tip of New York. Micron's building a plan in Manassas, $3 billion, opportunity zone. Amazon's second headquarters is partially in the opportunity zone in northern Virginia. These things have massive multiplier impacts. So are there existing incentives for businesses to invest in these opportunity zones as well? There are some existing benefits to businesses in almost every opportunity zone area, but this doesn't take away from those extra incentives. Having said that, these incentives are so complex. These incentives have so much paperwork it's a failure. That's why we have the massive income disparity in the United States, because they are a failure. And so it doesn't take it away. It doesn't take away your low income tax credits. doesn't take away new market. doesn't take away any of the job credits. But let's be realistic. These programs are so tiny and so artificial. They're a joke. They're a pinhead in terms of the net effect. And so... You need something big. A trillion dollars is 5% of the GDP of the United States. It'll be more than a trillion dollars. And it'll have a multiplier impact because, because it's not just 
every single U.S. taxpayer, every single individual, every single corporation, every single foreign taxpayer, every single trust. And so it covers such a huge amount. But remember, these things have their own multiplier impact. So we're already seeing non-taxpayers, state pension funds, begin to look at this as a way to change areas that are in need by joining with the people doing opportunity zones. When you think about these larger non-taxable pools, how are they incented to invest in opportunity zones? There's no specific economic incentive. It's just they're going to get a higher return on their money. Do you want to be downtown New York, which where jobs are going to be moving out from, or do you want to be in Brooklyn or the tip of New York? Do you want to be in Bethesda or do you want to be in Silver Spring? So once you create the enormous momentum, the non-taxable investor looking for making good investments is simply going to follow the people who are creating these jobs, who are creating the momentum here. So it's like water. It seeks the lowest ground. Returns simply seek the highest return based on the risk. And that's what's going to happen here. The same way anyone who bought downtown buildings 25 years ago in San Francisco, New York, Washington, has made a brilliant investment because you picked up on a trend that took place over the last 25 years. That is the movement back to the major cities, the major intellectual capital. Now, there is a doing good portion here. There is an ESG portion here. So we are seeing some state pension funds, some specific non-taxpayers that are saying, well, look, you know, we can get a good return and do good at the same time. So we're seeing this in a lot of places, and some of the large philanthropic foundations are making a major push in this area. Keep in mind, this also has one other twist to it, and that is the Community Reinvestment Act, which is two, $300 billion a year. That makes banks invest in certain areas. The truth is it's been a failure to a great extent because there's so much paperwork. It's so artificial at times that you make non-economic investments and the money disappears, and that gets people upset, gets everyone upset. So now, for the first time, every single bank can meet their Community Reinvestment Act criteria and do that through investing into op zones. Now, often they're not dissimilar to the investments that they made before. They're somewhat similar, only this time they're getting the benefit of a trillion dollars coming right behind it. If you combine anywhere in the world, if you take unlimited money and intellectual capital and you combine it, you create massive change. You create massive economic activity. Look at Abu Dhabi. There was nothing inherently strong about the economics of Abu Dhabi 20, 30 years ago. They married intellectual capital with unlimited money, and now it's aircraft leasing capital of the world or a major aircraft center. Before that, it was sand in the desert. So we start with this high-level thesis that you're going to have significant capital flow. And if you get in the 
epicenter of where that capital is flowing, you're going to see some great investment returns. You're tackling this from two perspectives. One is your business is investing in there. And then the other, I know with your own family foundation, you're making investments, you're allocating capital to the zones. Let's start with your family investments. From the bottom up, how do you start Say, okay, I want to invest in opportunity zones. What do you do? We're doing it from a philanthropy, we're seeing three or four different ways, not just us, but other people. So we have Kresge Foundation, a foundation saying, look, if you're putting together a op zone fund that meets our criteria, and that would be biased towards affordable housing, be biased towards Detroit, we will give you a first loss piece. We'll put in $10 on your $100 and we'll take the first loss. It makes it a 50 times better investment. So we ourselves are looking at investing in OpZone in different ways, mainly tied to the things that we care about. So one area which we're just starting is in the anti-factory farming area. So we're looking at a little more of the rural areas of what we can do for vertical farming, what we can do for more traditional farming. Because keep in mind that we have the farming system we have today because there's this massive subsidy for every large company. So we're looking at that in terms of a pure investment. But we're also looking to tie in to op-zone projects to tie in to what we want to do. Our company is building a hotel in Oakland, a low-end Marriott Hotel for Millennials, a Moxie Hotel, and 20 blocks away, 15 blocks away, is one of the most amazing philanthropic efforts I've ever seen called Creative Arts, which basically has 100, 200, 300 adults who would have trouble getting jobs in industry, but they come to this place and they do artwork. And they live it either at home or they live in group homes. And so we're giving money to them for the first time, and we're trying to tie it into the hotel that's going to be built, where we will buy some of the art, where we'll give them two or three events a year. We're going to try to do the same thing in Hardyville, South Carolina, where we're building warehouses next to Savannah. Hardyville is one of the poorest counties in South Carolina. If you take out the people who work at the airport, the average income for a family is $28,000. Well, if we can do a training program on the philanthropy side, and we're building eventually 15 warehouses there. Each warehouse will employ 50 people, 75 people. They run 24 hours a day. Savannah's the fastest-growing port in North America, period. No one's ever seen anything like it. It's now 12% of the GDP of the United States. So this piece is seven miles away. A road goes directly to the port, a railroad, and we're saying, fine, we're going to build warehouses here. We will change the county. Because if you have people who used to work at, and there's nothing wrong with working at the Dairy Queen, that used to work at the Dairy Queen, but now they're going to work at a warehouse and they're going to make not tips, not minimum wage and tips, but $45,000, $50,000, and they're going to have health insurance, they're going to have leave. Well, these people now become important parts of society. They don't lose their job when they have a flat tire. 
they go to the PTA meetings. They have health insurance. They're, in a sense, not part of the government safety net. They're part of all of society. And and this whole county has 3,000 jobs. We may create 1,500 new jobs. So, and there we will work through our philanthropy. Well, it isn't building the warehouses, but we'll work on a training program, or maybe we'll build a clinic. We don't know yet. With another group that's more interested in the ESG part of Opportunity Zones. So there's a wonderful linkage between philanthropy and and the businesses that are going to be in our op zones. But also, please keep in mind that this also creates a massive lifeline to the people who are already operating businesses in Opportunity Zone, because now they can expand. Now they can compete better against the businesses outside the Opportunity Zone. They get paid for helping to change these areas for the better or create jobs. If this program doesn't create jobs, then it doesn't work. And the one negative so far is that all the publicity has been about real estate, about how much money you're going to make in real estate, when really 90% of the publicity should be, we're going to create 1,000 jobs, 10,000 jobs. We're going to create a million jobs in these areas. How do you go about finding these opportunities? You're talking about rural farming and warehouses in South Carolina. And if someone's interested in looking at these spaces, how do they do it? This is a growing area. Remember, if this is a nine-inning game, they're throwing out the warm-up pitches. We don't even have the regs out. And so it's so early and there's so much skepticism. I talked to a thousand people, 900 of those thousand people think it's all make-believe. And when you get any type of dramatic change, no one wants to believe it in history. And you can go back in history and look at any gigantic change, political, economic. It's hard to believe that there will be a dramatic change. It doesn't happen that often. There's access to websites. There's, there's articles. We're overwhelmed with the number of people. Once the word gets out that you're investing, you're overwhelmed with individuals, with corporations all over the United States who are looking for capital. Capital is the key to making change. And, you know, one of the most powerful websites is the Economic Innovation Group. It's Sean Parker from Napster came up with this idea seven, eight years ago and is really the key driver. This is one of his think tanks, and they have a wonderful website with interactive maps, with news, and it's EIG, and it's very easy to get on it and get all the material. That's certainly a basic part. But this is so far gone under the radar screen, but at some point you'll see an explosion out there. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. 
Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. There's so much strife in Washington and the government. We've just had government shutdown, and we're talking about something that requires regulations to set the standards of how this is going to work. How has this made its way through? This is a bipartisan effort that started on the progressive side of the Democratic Party, and it's been going on trying to get through Congress for six, eight years. And the leaders are probably Tim Scott and Cory Booker on the Senate side. One's Republican, one's a progressive Democrat. And they worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. Many, many other people have joined them and they slipped it in to the tax legislation, the bill that was passed in 17, which no one even barely realized it. So it it is law. It's just no more than a page, page and a half. But now the regulations have to be written around it. But that doesn't need Congress. That just needs the Internal Revenue and the Treasury Department to get together and put meat onto the law. That's what they're doing. There will be another set of regulations that will allow people to really be aggressively doing things. And then there'll be abuse regulations because whenever you create a program of a trillion dollars or more, it's only natural that there'll be abuses. And so that will be a third set of regulations. But again, this is just beginning and it's mind boggling to me that People don't understand the gigantic impact. Some of the impact is negative. It's going to have a negative impact on a lot of real estate that's in more traditional areas. The same thing, the demographics had a negative impact on on some places, the United States and the suburbs, whether it be Washington or Westchester or wherever, where the real movement of people is into the cities. You mentioned the potential for abuse. If we're in the top of the first or we're in the warm-up pitches and we've got a nine-inning game and hopefully extra innings, we've got a long way to go with a lot of potential. What could go wrong? Well, what could go wrong is I could be dead wrong in terms of how, how many people are going to use this. But unless it's used in massive size, then this becomes another government program. If this is going to be a $50 billion small program, then forget abuse. It's just nothing but another failure. I believe it'll be more than a trillion dollars. This is going to go on until 26. They're already talking about extending it because they see this as a win-win situation. The government is going to make money in this program, not lose money, because you're taking dead assets you'll never get the tax on. You're creating jobs. We estimate it'll increase GDP by four-tenths of percent. In terms of abuse, there's lots of people who jump in anything new, whether it be Bitcoin, whether it be marijuana, whether it be any new industry. 
or new concept. And, you know, you're going to get people who don't understand it, who aren't used to of doing things a certain way, doing it the correct way. And so it will be abused by people who are maybe sham artists. I don't know. Or it'll be abused because it doesn't create quite the change everyone hoped for. And that, in some cases, that'll be true. But I believe that we have abuse everywhere. We have abuse in income tax. Income tax has been around for, you know, almost 80, 90 years now. Do we have abuses there? Absolutely, every single day. So you're never going to prevent complete abuse. The best way to prevent abuse is, one, make something simple. Part of the reason we have abuse in income tax is nobody can understand their income tax. The beauty of this is it's so simple that it's A, B, C, D, E. It's the federal government's not involved with it on an hourly basis. It, new market tax credits is a wonderful program. Only to come up with $100, it costs the government $200. It's a joke. It, it, it costs more to administer it, to put it together, than the net effect. Here, the government's saying, look, we're going to change the tax policy. It's going to be self-administered. We will audit it and let it go. Now, I would argue the abuse you're going to see is abuse that people don't like to talk about, and that is change. Nobody likes change. Everyone likes life, at least if you're living the good life, you like it the way it is. And so the abuse actually is going to come from people who say, no, no, this is not the way we should make change in the United States. We want to make it through massive government programs which we know are failures over and over and over again. And so there are people who are strongly opposed to, to one change of their areas, uh, not in my backyard, whether it's a windmill, whether it's solar, no matter what it is, whether it's affordable housing. The biggest issue is never in my backyard. So you are going to get pushback, but it's surprise where you're going to get pushback. You're getting pushback in Long Island City from unions. You're getting pushback from different specific groups that are actually the major beneficiary. Unions are a major, major beneficiary of OpZone because if you create massive jobs, massive construction, they're the beneficiary. In Oakland, we know our hotel is union-built, union labor. Great. <laughs> We're overjoyed. So there will be pushback. There will be abuse. It's going to be surprising. The pushback and the abuse is going to come from people who see this as a change that they don't want because they're used to making the change come through themselves. So you'll see pushback from nonprofits. You'll see pushback from everybody who feels threatened by this program. So if you're an individual or a professional and you are either looking at investments or looking to start a business, how would you encourage someone to pay attention to what's happening in the Opportunity Zones? Every single person who's going to start a business in the United States is going to look at Opportunity Zones. The reason is they're across the street from where they are now in many cases, and they need to 
look at the rules, find out about the rules, because what are those advantages of the rules? The first advantage of the rules, if you're going to start a business or expand your business, you're probably going to have lots of people, lots of funds who want to give you money. And raising money, raising capital is the honey that starts all of it. It is the catalyst that makes it work. And if Uber can't raise money, if Amazon can't raise money, if if Google can't raise their initial round, there are no companies. And so that is one important key, and that's what's so important about Opportunity Zone. It provides you access much, much easier to $100, a $1,000, $1 million, $100 million, a $1 billion. So all of a sudden, the ability to start a business in the United States is going to become 20 times easier because the hardest part of starting any business in this country is money, having the initial capital, and staying power. Because you can have the most brilliant idea, but you need staying power. And the money coming into Opportunity Zones is going to provide you that and provide you with a community environment, an environment that helps feed your business. A lot of business formation in the United States, you look at what's happened in Silicon Valley over the last 20 or 30 years, a lot of the people there say that the companies that spawn out of Silicon Valley in part are successful because you have the human capital ecosystem that's sitting there. And maybe you start to have that more and more in a place like Austin, Texas. How do you go from having none of that in an opportunity zone to creating enough of an ecosystem of human capital so that businesses can hire the right people and thrive? You have to start somewhere. We call it the law of increasing returns. The reason Austin is the capital of Texas is people were crossing the plains and a wagon broke down and many of the people in the wagon train said, we're not going any further. They stopped there and that became (laughs) Austin, Texas. Charlotte, North Carolina is the banking capital of the United States. No inherent advantage except it was the first state to approve interstate banking. So a first mover advantage and a little bit of extra help gets you there. Columbus, Ohio, the restaurant capital of the United States. Why? McDonald's are there, then Wendy's, so forth and so on. Then every spinoff. So you already see it happening in New York, Boston, where Boston's a medical center in the United States for much technology. New York is artificial intelligence, is high-tech media. So this is a huge country. And so... It will create, as you said, communities. It will create environments where the wealth will be spread out. And the, one of the negatives of Silicon Valley is that it's so concentrated. It creates its own problems. And so, so this is going to spread these communities out to other areas across the board. It's already happening. Salt Lake City, Austin, New York, Washington, Boston. You know, many of the cities in the United States, it'll give them an opportunity to participate. In fact, I I would short Silicon Valley right now. If you have real estate in Palo Alto, you should be selling it. Because if you're in Silicon Valley, you're, except for a small place in Silicon Valley, which is an opportunity zone, those businesses are all going to move to Oakland or they're going to move to parts of California that are opportunity zones. So, Manny, you're sitting today on a multi-billion dollar asset management business. And you're clearly passionate about what's going to happen over whatever period of time in these opportunity zones. How do you focus your time 
to decide, okay, we need to integrate what's happening in Opportunity Zones with our business? So what we're doing is we're trying to raise money in Opportunity Zones. We have a fund and we're raising money and building projects, but it's a tiny part of what we do. We're mainly a specialized player in debt of banks or small banks, but that's a lucky break for us because one of the secondary benefits of Opportunity Zone is many of the small banks in the United States that sit in the middle of Opportunity Zones. They're going to be overwhelmed with new loan applications. And so we're getting some of our leads from small banks or medium-sized banks. We will do cap relief for small banks. So anytime you have a massive change, it creates the opportunity. It's when you have no change that there's no opportunity. So I don't care whether it's 08, 09, or the Great Depression, out of those things come great change, come big change eventually. And we already have 10 people working on Opportunity Zone, and we are trying to get it to the next level. We like to be investors. We like to be lenders. We like to be people who work with the balance sheets of the lenders to allow them to make these loans. Well, Manny, this is an exciting beginning, and it's going to be fun to sit down you know, sometime later and see what's happened. But I can't be sitting with you without taking the opportunity to look back at the closing questions I asked you last year and filter in with the new ones that I have. So I have a couple of closing questions for you, and then we'll just let this run. So the first is, what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? It's really biking, though. It's biking because I have to bike because my wife does triathlons. And for me to bike with her, I need to bike because she'll bike 70, 80 miles a day. So fortunately, she got me a pedal-assisted bike. And so biking is probably my biggest sport. Yeah, you know, I asked this question. Anyone who talks about cycling, people say there's two types of cyclists, those who have crashed and those who will. Where do you fit into that Everybody's crashed because if you bike uh, enough, you're going to have lots of crashes. It's like saying if you play professional football, are you going to have injuries? Period. You're going to have injuries. You're going to have crashes. So everyone who bikes has crashes. Any good stories? No, but I do understand (laughs) why you always wear a helmet. uh, And your mind drifts when you bike long enough. Yeah. All right. What's your biggest pet peeve? My biggest pet peeve is I'm very, very discouraged with the government that they're not able to work together. This country is so powerful, so great, but we're part of the world now. But uh, I feel like I was a teacher at one point. I taught seventh grade. When I watch Congress and when I watch the administration, I feel like I'm back, not in the seventh grade, I'm back in the first grade. And I I just can't believe it. And especially when all these people were growing up were my heroes. And I've never seen such levels of childishness and, in a sense, going backwards. I mean, there's a famous law called Dunbar's Law. This is everything is in 300s. Why? whether it's your Facebook people or the people you can talk to, because we grew up in communities of 300 people for 100,000 years, 500,000 years. That's why you only can have 300 real friends. That's why gossip is so important. But the beauty of these complex societies, we were able to 
hopefully override Dunbar's law. And here we see the opposite, that everyone's going backwards. So my pet peeve is the government, which has to be the leader, has lost its leadership ability. And we all need leadership. Well, it's called the tragedy of the commons because it's very, very hard to get people to act past their innate self-interest at times. We have lots of goodness in us, but it's hard to get that done. And so so what you have going on now in Congress is the tragedy of the commons, fishing, killing every single fish in the ocean, killing every single bison, because kill them as fast as you can because I'm a hunter and I'm going to maximize my benefit. And somehow you have to break that. Is there a way of changing incentives so that individual behavior fosters the type of community that can bring the first graders back up to at least the seventh grade? Yes, leadership. We don't have this in every country. We didn't always have this in the United States. So obviously we're idealistic. People forget people called for George Washington to be guillotined in the 1790s on some of the fights about France and England. So, you know, we've never been as perfect as we think we are, but great leadership can make all the difference in the world. And, and those people have to make everyone rise to their levels. And it's disturbing. How do you define great leadership? It's where great leadership is are leaders who see the bigger issues, the bigger good of society. And then they take people who want to be small thinkers and they bring them up to their level instead of going down to the lowest of the low level. Manny, last one. What's your favorite motto or expression that teaches a life lesson? My favorite motto comes from the book of Isaiah, which says, you are my witness, I am the Lord. You're not my witness, I am not the Lord. And it's interpreted over and over again that what is it really saying? It's saying each of us is the hand of God. Each of us can be God, can save that person on the street or make a difference, make small differences, make big differences. And it really is a powerful, powerful statement because at least it allows me to understand how human beings how you can have something like the Holocaust happen, which being Jewish is something that is very, very important to me. But every single group has had their own Holocaust, and they ask the same question or the same terrible tragedy. They say, well, how could this happen? Well, at least that gives you an answer of how it can happen because the rest of the people don't do anything. Manny, this has been incredibly interesting to learn about this area, which clearly has extraordinary potential for the country. Hopefully it'll continue, and thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 